Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we'll be re recording today's call, so I have muted everyone's line. If you have a question for our speakers at the end of the call, please unmute your line by dialing star six. That's a star six. Today's call will be led by Peter Barrett of Kutak Rock in Richmond, Virginia. Peter is the current special projects leader of the Asset Sales Committee. Thanks, Peter. All right, very good. This is Peter Barrett from QTAC Rock. Thank you, Martha, and I apologize for my lack of ability to use a phone. On behalf sure. of our committee co-chairs, Franklin Lee and Bradley Sharp, I'd like to welcome you to our committee call. I'd also like to welcome you at this point to greater involvement with our committee. We're actively seeking articles for our regular committee newsletter and would love your input on additional committee calls like this one, as well as webinars and other educational presentations you'd like to see. Please contact either one of our committee co-chairs or one of the members of the committee that you can see at abi.org um, for additional information if you're interested. Today's call is going to address the GM successor liability decision now on appeal in the Second Circuit. We're delighted to have two very knowledgeable presenters who have been closely following the case. Um, we have John Hutton, who's a shareholder at Greenberg Trowing in Miami. We also have Henry Jaffe, who's a partner at Pepper Hamilton in Wilmington. I thank you again for joining the call, and John and Henry, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you, Peter. This is John Hutton, and welcome, everybody. Good afternoon. This is actually part two of our discussion on the GM successor liability decision, this time focusing on, as Peter said, the arguments on appeal in the Second Circuit, which is actually scheduled to be heard next week on March 15th. Uh, it's been fully briefed, and the, the argument is next week. Um, Here's a, I'm going to give a general outline of how we're going to discuss this and go through the agenda items. First, I'm going to give a general overview, and then Henry will provide a summary of the factual and procedural background that led to the bankruptcy court's decision. Then I will briefly summarize the bankruptcy court's decision. Henry will then summarize and comment on the appellant's briefs on appeal in the Second Circuit. Then I'll summarize and comment on GM's position on appeal. And then lastly, We'll both make some um, uh, talk about some some teaching points and lessons to be learned out of this proceeding and look what to look for out of the, the Second Circuit opinion. By way of general background, um, as we all know, one of the most significant benefits of acquiring assets out of a bankruptcy estate is the ability to obtain those assets free and clear of liens, claims, interests, and encumbrances pursuant to Section 363 of the Bankruptcy Code and the terms of a bankruptcy court sale order. And in certain circuits, including in particular the Second Circuit, the term interest includes not only in rem interest, but in personam interest as well, such as successor liability claims, which is what is at issue in the GM case. The GM case does not challenge the underlying notion in the Second Circuit that Section 363 sales can be authorized free and clear of successor liability claims. That's that it's been established. Rather, the GM litigation on successor liability presents the issue of the extent to which the sale order can be enforced against parties who did not receive actual notice of the sale and whether a showing of prejudice by those parties is required to obtain relief against the purchaser and what relief would be appropriate. So the, the bankruptcy court decision was issued back on April 15th of 2015. Um, and it concerns the rights of two general groups of claimants that were allegedly harmed by a failure of GM to provide them with actual notice of certain critical deadlines in the GM case, including 
Number one, the, the notice of the expedited 363 sale itself, which was handled in, in you know, probably record time at the beginning of the case, just over a month. And B, notice of the proof of claims bar date later on that same year in 2009. The first and more publicized group of plaintiffs were, were the so-called economic loss plaintiffs. Those are claimants asserting economic loss claims against new GM as well as claims against old GM primarily based upon the conduct of old GM. As the media reports made the general public aware, certain personnel at GM knew of an ignition switch defect before it filed for bankruptcy, some as early as 2003, although this is a fact that GM now disputes in its brief on appeal in the Second Circuit. The second group of claimants were the so-called pre-closing accident plaintiffs, and those are plaintiffs who had actual accidents involving the ignition switch defect that took place before the 363 sale, but that had not put GM on notice of a claim. Those two groups of creditors were not provided with actual notice of either the 363 sale or the proof of claims bar date. And I say actual notice because there was widespread publication notice, but they had no direct actual notice. The, the failure of those two groups of creditors to receive actual notice of those events raised a whole host of issues, including whether having not received actual notice of these deadlines, number one, whether their claims were against new GM were barred by the sale order, and number two, whether they're entitled to file late claims and participate in a distribution of assets held by the GUC Trust, the General Unsecured Creditors Trust, established in the bankruptcy case of old GM. What makes this situation to me interesting is that it forces the court to balance the competing interests of two groups of innocents. Number one, the class action plaintiffs did not, did not receive actual direct notice. And on the other hand, new GM, which purchased the assets free and clear of any successor liability claims and did not have any notice of the claims at issues. So as between these two innocents, the bankruptcy court came out in favor of the class action plaintiffs but only to the extent that they could demonstrate prejudice, which for the most part in GM, the plaintiffs did not do, except with respect to one narrow category, the boundaries of which are being tested, as we will, we will discuss. Um, also, I would note the issues on appeal are primarily issues of law, to which a, as to which a de novo standard of review applies. So it'll be interesting to see how the Second Circuit comes out on important issues of who is a known creditor, whether prejudice is required to establish a due process violation and what the appropriate remedy is. At this point, I'll turn it over to Henry and, and, and he'll give us a detailed background on the, on the facts leading up to the bankruptcy court decision. That's great. Thanks, John. Uh, this is Henry Jaffe from Pepper Hamilton. Um, just a, a little follow-up on, on one of John's points, and that is sort of this competing of, of balancing of interest between two innocents. One of the tales on, on that uh, theory is and really one of the themes that you see in the briefs, as we'll discuss, is that perhaps new GM wasn't so innocent. Um, there's the, the claims that are being pursued now against new GM in its own right, in other words, independent claims, not based upon the, necessarily the conduct of old GM, the theme that keeps coming up is that new GM sort of continued this wrongdoing in concealing the uh, ignition switch defects, and, and that may end up, uh, as it turns out, having some effect on the Second Circuit's decision. So let me go and give a, a little bit of a background on, on the various uh, plaintiffs here, the ignition switch economic loss plaintiffs, and also the pre-closing plaintiffs 
uh, parties who were actually in accidents prior to closing of the sale, uh, but GM didn't know of their existence. And then I'll talk a little bit about the bankruptcy case. So in terms of the economic loss plaintiffs, in, in March of 2014, after its purchase of the old GM assets, New GM announced the existence of this ignition switch defect in approximately 27 million vehicles that were manufactured by old GM uh, beginning as early as 2005 and for which a recall was issued in the spring of 2014. And under that recall, New GM would replace the, de the defective switches at its own cost. In revealing the defect, it was further revealed, as, as John was alluding to, that at least 24 business people and in-house counsel at GM knew of this defect um, at the time of the July 2009 363 sale, and they were only provided with constructive notice. They didn't actually get a recall notice, and they didn't get a sale notice. Um, now, the, these economic loss plaintiffs are plaintiffs who sued new GM under theories of successor liability for damages related to reduction of the sale value of their cars, unpaid time off, um, but, but these economic loss claimants did not include people who suffered personal injury claims, property damage claims, warranty claims, um, uh, but the aggregate value of their claims is significant in the billions of dollars. I, I will note, as you will see, that the fact that, they, that these claimants didn't include those other claimants, the reason for that is that new GM voluntarily assumes certain liabilities and some of these assumption um, of liabilities was as a result of what, what could have been argued was political pressure. In other words, they did it voluntarily. They weren't necessarily required to do that as a matter of law. And that becomes interesting, as we'll see later on, as it relates to the arguments that were raised. There's another group of plaintiffs, and those are the pre-closing accident plaintiffs, as I mentioned. These are folks that were involved in accidents that were allegedly caused by the de defective switch before the sale, but again, GM didn't know of them, and they weren't. Um, uh, they didn't alert GM to their accidents uh, prior to the time when notices went out. Um, in terms of the background of the case, as people may remember, in 2009, GM filed as Chapter 11, and they moved for court approval of sale procedures. Um, a sale procedures order was entered. An actual notice was was act, was a sent out to over 4 million claimants um, and uh, various other parties received constructive notice uh, through major national newspapers explaining the general terms of the sale. Now, there were 70 million owners of old GM cars and they were not provided with actual notice, but what's relevant here is that there were 27 million owners of old GM cars with ignition switch defects and again, other than those who had been in accidents known to old GM, they only received publication notice. They didn't receive actual notice, although theoretically, perhaps they should have. Um, old GM's proposed sale order, uh, not surprisingly, was like a typical 363 order. It authorized the sale free and clear of other liens, claims, encumbrances, and interests, including specifically all successor liability claims. Now, the motion for the sale was met with 850 objections, uh, and many parties uh, specifically opposed the free and clear provisions, uh, including attorneys general from 44 states. The court overruled these objections, determined that new GM should be protected from these various claims, including successor liability claims. And as I said before, new GM voluntarily assumed various liabilities, such as personal injury claims, death claims, property 
property damage claims, as well as warranty, statutory recall, and lemon law claims. So uh, in order to get the sale through, and, and I think what many people would argue, um, in light of the fact that this was coming from very special government money uh, under the TARP legislation, uh, new G and this was going through in record time, new GM uh, stepped to the plate and assumed liabilities that otherwise it might not have otherwise assumed under or been required to assume under bankruptcy law. Now, there was also a proof of claim bar date, um, which occurred after the sale of the uh, assets to new GM closed in 2009. The proof of claim bar date was in November 30th. And as with the 363 notice, um, it was only provided to the plaintiffs in these cases by publication. In March of, at the end of March of 2011, the old GM's plan was confirmed, and pursuant to the plan, the General Unsecured Creditors Trust was established. Under the plan, distributions were to be made to certain beneficiaries, including holders of allowed general unsecured claims. Um, as of the effective date, or, or claims that were disputed but were subsequently allowed. There was obviously reserve for currently disputed or claims or claims that were subject to a dispute but that were known. As the holder of beneficial interest in the trust, those that allowed unsecured claims received securities in new GM. And between May of 2011 and September of 2014, the unsecured creditors trust made distributions on account of allowed claims um, that were previously disputed but were resolved. By September of 2014, more than 89% of the new GM securities had been issued. And in October of 2014, the trust disclosed that it was going to make a further distribution in November of that year. Um, but for strategic reasons, most likely, the plaintiffs in these actions did not seek a stay of that uh, distribution. And as we'll discuss, that's an important fact. As of December of 2014, approximately $773 million of new GM securities have been issued, and this is very important. There is an accordion feature under, under the plan which if certain, a certain threshold of allowed claims were reached, um, there was basically a right for parties uh, with allowed claims to receive additional distributions of stock. So there was basically an expansion of a right to receive stock uh, for those with allowed claims once, once we got over certain aggregate thresholds of allowed claims in the case. Um, so uh, the, the court's opinion was issued as a result of a motion filed by new GM to enforce the court sale order to block various plaintiff suits that arose after uh, this ignition switch defect was announced to the public in uh, 2014. Okay. Well, John, on to you. Yep. Uh, against that background, I, I just wanted to briefly summarize what the bankruptcy court decision held, and this was the subject of our, our, our last committee call. Uh, but um, number one, um, the, the bankruptcy court had to decide whether there was a defect in the notice provided to the plaintiffs, and essentially the conclusion was yes, because the bankruptcy court concluded that uh, these uh, classes of, of plaintiffs were known creditors that were entitled to actual notice and they received only constructive notice by publication, which was, in the bankruptcy court's opinion, insufficient under the circumstances. The second issue is, if there was a defect in notice, whether the plaintiffs suffered a due process violation as a result. And the answer was, by the bankruptcy court, only to the extent they could demonstrate prejudice. 
The third issue was well, whether there was in fact prejudice to the plaintiffs in this case. And the answer for the most part by the bankruptcy court was there was no prejudice because there are so many, so many other parties similarly situated who competently argue the same issues being argued by these plaintiffs at the 2009 sale hearing, and their objections were all overruled by the bankruptcy court, such that the result would not have been any different. Had they received proper notice, had they come and appeared and argued the same arguments, the result would not have been any different. The only, there was one exception, that was the, um, the court found that the um, plaintiffs articulated one issue that was not argued and considered back in 2009, uh, and as to that, the court you know, found that they suffered prejudice, and that was that the sale order was overly broad to the extent that the economic loss plaintiffs were asserting claims against new GM based solely upon post-sale conduct by new GM, and that, that was an issue that was not decided at the sale hearing, so yeah, as to that issue, the court found that there was prejudice. And so if there was prejudice, the next issue was whether the court could fashion a remedy and what that remedy would be. And the court decided that yes, the bankruptcy court said notwithstanding the importance of finality and sale orders, that constitutional requirements of due process trumped those concerns. The remedy was that the sale order would be modified to allow this narrow category of claims, uh, claims against new GM based solely upon its post-sale conduct to proceed against new GM. And we'll get into this later, but the, the boundaries of that have been tested in collateral proceedings. Likewise, the, the GM court had to decide as to the claims by the plaintiffs against the GUP trust, could those claimants participate as creditors entitled to a distribution? And it presented similar notice issues with, as to the sale order, um, but recognizing that the situation was less exigent thus providing even less of a justification for the debtor's failure to provide notice. However, the pivotal issue there was whether equitable mootness precluded claims against the Guck Trust, and the court decided that yes, because the rights of the Guck Trust beneficiaries could not be impaired at this late date, uh, five years after the fact, due to, among other things, the reliance of those creditors voting on the Chapter 11 plan and the nature and amount of claims to be asserted against the estate and the projected recoveries, and, and I think this is probably the most significant factor, the lack of diligence by plaintiffs loomed large as they never moved to stay distributions, that they were really more interested in obtaining claims against new GM. That is, GM finally, five years later, uh, in early 2014, issued public recall notices. Promptly after that, these plaintiffs filed you know, actions against new GM um, there was a distribution later on in 2014. Um, the, the estate gave notice in October of 2014 that it would be making a distribution in November of 2014, and the plaintiffs never moved, moved to stay that. And the bankruptcy court basically said that had they thought to stay, stay that distribution, it probably would have granted that relief. So but the result is that with the exception of the claims of the economic loss plaintiffs based solely upon conduct of new GM, the plaintiffs were not were held not to have any right of recovery against either old GM, the Guck Trust, or new GM, and that is the result that's being tested on appeal in the Second Circuit. So now we're going to turn to the issues and arguments heard on appeal, and Henry will discuss the plaintiff's arguments on appeal. Yeah, so I'd like to first start by discussing uh, the arguments that were raised by the economic loss plaintiffs. They call themselves the ignition switch plaintiffs. In their in their appellate brief, um, 
Not surprisingly, the, uh, the uh, ignition switch plaintiffs um, uh, concurred that the bankruptcy court properly held that they were known creditors entitled to actual notice of the sale hearing and that publication notice was insufficient for due process purposes. Um, just by way of background, uh, we discussed this on the prior call, and folks probably know that you know where you have parties whose claims are, are known or knowable, uh, those parties are entitled to actual notice in the sense that they're entitled to, um, in most instances, a mailing. They're entitled to be personally notified of the sale, typically uh, with, with a notice that's sent out and received, um, whereas claimants who are unknown claimants, claims that are not known or, or reasonably knowable, are typically only entitled to generalized publication notice, constructive notice, uh, the idea there is they're not knowable, but there should be some mechanism to inform the universe of claimants uh, who, who can't really be ascertained that, in fact, there are proceedings going on. Uh, the, this is a very well-known standard that's been uh, applicable since the Mullane case, uh, and I think most people are familiar with it. Um, and not surprisingly here, uh, the plaintiffs said that the bankruptcy court correctly concluded that they were known creditors entitled to actual notice, um, but they also argued that the bankruptcy court erred in finding that that they needed to show prejudice in order to be entitled to a remedy for denial of due process and that prejudice had not been shown. So they, they argued when um, there is neither notice or an opportunity to be heard, no additional showing of prejudice is required because the denial itself is prejudice. And so once there's been a lack of notice and opportunity to be heard, there is a due process injury, even where the outcome would have been the same. Um, the court uh, in the Second Circuit uh, has had a several uh, decisions that have been issued on these issues, and um, the plaintiffs distinguish authority from other circuits regarding the need to show prejudice, and there, er there is su sufficient authority in other circuits for this to be a, a pretty significant issue for them. And they cited um, Second Circuit and Supreme Court precedent where, at least implicitly, prejudice did not have to be shown in order for there to be a remedy for a due process violation. Um, here they also talked about the lack of notice and concealment of the ignition switch defect, which prevented anyone from apprising the bankruptcy court of the conduct of, of old GM in connection with the defect and the damage inflicted on the plaintiffs. But they further argue that even assuming that an, a showing of prejudice is required, they were prejudiced because of the concealment and new GM's continued uh, concealment, which resulted in their losses. The... Um, they basically argued the failure to apprise them of, of the uh, pendency of the sale and, and the proof of claim bar date and deprived them of the notice and opportunity to be heard, which wasn't, and this is really critical, they argued that uh, contrary to what the bankruptcy court held, which was, hey, listen, uh, yeah, we didn't give you notice, but you really weren't prejudiced because other people raised the same arguments that you seem to be raising, and so it was no harm, no foul. We would have ended up in the same place. Well, their argument was that notice by proxy, in other words, the notion that other people were arguing your same interests wasn't sufficient. They argued that the arguments raised 
uh, by these other parties were not the same. None of the other parties arguing against the successor liability ban raised or could have raised issues of intentional concealment of the ignition switch defect because none of them knew at the time that old GM and then new GM was concealing the defect. That They also focused uh, on the fact that the court uh, was only uh, really directed and looking at what it would have done rather than looking at the totality of the circumstances that existed at the time. Uh, and I think there's a fairly uh, persuasive argument in this regard because what they were saying is, look, a number of things were done in this case because of sort of the unique storm of activity. Um, uh, there was TARP money. This was a very expedited sale. Um, and that parties would have been outraged by what they viewed to be the concealment of this defect. And they argue fairly persuasively that, you know, if this had really happened again, it could have been a completely different outcome. And it's, it's not proper for the court in retrospect to place itself back as things were in 2009 and say what it would have done. Um, continuing on, they um, also um, made some interesting arguments about used car purchasers. Um, they say the bankruptcy court erred by enforcing the sale order against post-sale purchasers of old GM vehicles, um, and, and the bankruptcy court's order would have barred these claims against new GM um, but what they said was, you know, these claimants who bought their vehicles after the sale were really future claimants to whom no notice was possible, and they relied on the Second Circuit Grumman case, which held that the court there held that the Franklin order did not bar a claim by a party who was injured post-sale by a vehicle manufactured pre-sale. The notion was that the victim was not a claimant at the time of closing, and that the sale was not free and clear of any claims that would arise in the future. So future claimants here would be those whose cars lost value post-sale after the defect was relieved, was revealed. Rather, This injury did not occur pre-sale because it didn't exist. There had been no um, revelation at that point or disclosure at that point of these defects. And so the notion is these people didn't have claims pre-sale. They couldn't have claims pre-sale. Um, they only had post-sale claims, and those claims uh, were in personam claims, which really shouldn't have been affected by the bankruptcy sale. Very interesting argument. There was a similar interesting argument, and they argued that the bankruptcy court erred in holding that only GM cars, car owners um, uh, who had an ignition switch defect suffered due process violations and could bring claims against new GM based solely on new GM's own independent post-sale conduct. Uh, but the court further held that the sale order barred independent claims by entities whose cars did not have ignition switch defects. Uh, their point here was that um, the plaintiff's claims were based on new GM's fraudulent concealment of the defect and new GM's misrepresentations regarding the safety and reliability of GM vehicles, actions and violations of new GM's independent legal duties to refrain from unfair and deceptive trade practices. They argued that the bankruptcy court doesn't have a rising in a related to subject matter jurisdiction to protect the non-debtor new GM by limiting rights of any plaintiffs to bring suit against new GM or new GM's own post-sale misconduct in breach of new GM's own independent legal duties. Let me cut to the chase. What they're basically saying is, look, uh, if new GM has independent 
post-sale obligations, regardless of whether they're based upon a, a ignition switch defect or some other defect, those are not barred by the bankruptcy court injunction. They're not subject to 363. They're independent and post-sale misconduct. And regardless of whether it arises from an ignition switch defect or some other defect, that conduct cannot be uh, – the bankruptcy court has no jurisdiction to bar claims based upon that post-sale conduct. It's a very interesting argument and something that may get the attention of the Second Circuit. Um, then they went on to say that even though the bankruptcy court correctly found that the plaintiffs were prejudiced in that they didn't receive constitutionally adequate notice, um, they focused on the court's decision with respect to their the claimant's ability to pursue claims against the Unsecured Creditors Trust. They they argued that the bankruptcy court erred by finding, based upon equitable mootness, that um, the assets of the trust could not be used to satisfy their claims. Um, in arguing this, they argued that equitable mootness is a doctrine that's generally disfavored, has been used very sparingly, and they further argued it's never been used or employed to thwart a creditor's whose due process rights were violated. But turning on more specifically, um, going back to the bankruptcy court decision, the court described equitable newtness as a doctrine that reflects for the pragmatic principle that with the passage of time after a judgment in equity and implementation of that judgment, effective relief becomes impractical, imprudent, and therefore inequitable. However, more specifically, for equitable newtness to apply, the court has to apply that, find that any of the following five factors exist, and this is really the subject of the appeal. One, the court can still order some effective relief. Two, the relief will not affect the reemergence of the debtor as a revitalized entity. That's really not a, a effect. It's really not relevant here because there really wasn't a reorg. It was a, it was a 363 sale. Uh, the relief won't unravel in, intricate transactions, create an unmanageable, uncontrollable situation for the bankruptcy court. Um, the parties who would be adversely affected by the modification have notice of the appeal and an opportunity to participate. And then this is very important. The appellants pursued with diligence the available remedies to obtain a stay of, ex of execution of the order that they're objecting to. So the three factors we're focused on here. First was whether some effective relief could be granted. And the plaintiffs argued that contrary to the bankruptcy court's holding, it would be neither inequitable nor impossible for the bankruptcy court to fashion relief with respect to the accordion feature that we discussed of the plan, which basically allowed more stock to be issued. The remaining GUC trust assets, again, all the assets of the trust have not been distributed, nor were they distributed at the time this issue came before the, um, before the bankruptcy court. And then finally, past distribution of trust assets. They argue the relief can be afforded against the, the trust without modifying the confirmation order, unraveling the plan, because a, the plaintiffs could have filed late proofs of claim, and in that regard, they showed that other late proofs of claim were, in fact, allowed. Second, those claims could be allowed as, as unsecured claims, and the parties would theoretically take peri passu. Um, they also noted that even if there were a lesser percentage of assets um, that were distributed to these later claimants, um, still they could be afforded some relief. They then focused on whether 
the relief would inequitably impact third parties. The bankruptcy court found that granting relief would somehow knock the props out from the transactions under which these uh, trust units, which are basically stock, were acquired. They basically found that um, there was an assumption that granting this relief that was being requested by the plaintiffs would somehow be inconsistent with the expectation of unit holders and parties who believed they would be re receiving certain uh, pr basically VAT percentages of distribution or certain amount of stock in connection uh, with their claims. If those uh, distributions were diluted, that would somehow uh, impair their expectations. They argue that even if it's true, the bankruptcy court really did not discuss how this expectation would impede relief they might get via the accordion uh, feature of the plan. Um, at a minimum, they could receive exclusive access to accordion feature, uh, which would give them uh, some dilution um, uh, in terms of what the plaintiffs would get, but really wouldn't dilute any type of recoveries that were going to be received by the other plaintiffs, uh, pardon me, the other creditors. Um, and this uh, was an inconsistency that was troubling to the plaintiffs and I think was a, a very good argument. The plaintiffs um, also could recover from the trust assets. Again, they weren't all distributed, and this would result in a 13% distribution for these plaintiffs um, if their claims were allowed at $7 billion, and it would allow the other parties to retain $0.28 cents on the dollar. But again, there was some relief that could be afforded. The bankruptcy, they also argued the bankruptcy court incorrectly found that the litigation would delay distributions. Um, they argued that it wouldn't be much of a delay because in any event, there weren't going to be further distributions until November of 2016. I think that argument is, is somewhat uh, persuasive, but obviously if there was plaintiff's class action litigation, it could go on for years. M my response to that would be, well, yes, it could go on for years, but this happens all the time in bankruptcy cases. Final distributions are held up while claims are litigated. It happens all the time. It doesn't seem to be a really persuasive reason uh, not to provide distributions to these plaintiffs if their claims are valid. Um, then there was, I think, what we, John and I would agree is probably the most important issue, which is for strategic reasons, uh, they, the plaintiffs here did not seek a stay of the November 2014 distribution. Um, one of the things that the plaintiffs argued was that this factor, which talks about stay of an order, uh, technically shouldn't even apply um, to what happened with respect to the distribution. They weren't seeking a stay of an order. They were seeking a stay of a distribution. So their argument would be this factor of equitable mootness simply has no application to a distribution under a plan. But they argued that even if this factor did apply, uh, they were fairly diligent. They started their suits quickly. They asked the trustee to to refrain from making a distribution while their rights were distributed. And then to me, in a persuasive um, factor is the fact that um, this distribution that was made in November of 2014, you know, it was 2.45% of all of the trust assets. And my view is it wasn't a particularly large distribution in the scheme of things, but even if it was, the court still could have fashioned an appropriate remedy and it said, listen, uh, you didn't act timely with respect to this distribution. The cat's out of the bag with that. We're not, you're not going to be entitled to any portion of that distribution, um, but basically you might be entitled to whatever's left in the trust. To me, they harmed themselves by doing that, but that was no excuse for the court not to give them some type of access to the remaining trust assets. Um, there was also 
a brief that was filed by the pre-closing accident plaintiffs. Um, they went through many of the other arguments, but suffice to say, the real theme of the pre-closing accident plaintiffs brief is that where there is a due process violation and a party is not accorded the notice as a known creditor, they're not given the notice that they're entitled to receive, um, A, there no showing of prejudice is necessary for the court to grant relief, which is a theme that we saw in the economic loss plaintiff's brief, but secondarily, that the, the lack of notice itself is entitles the plaintiff who was not permitted to participate in the sale objection, was not permitted to file a proof of claim because it wasn't provided with notice, it basically renders the sale order or the uh, proof of claim bar date order inapplicable and void as to that particular party. No prejudice need be shown, and the remedy is that it never happened, and so as to that plaintiff. And so with respect to new GM, the, the remedy would be that they can pursue their claims. The sale order is unenforceable as to them. Uh, they also argued that, um, in contra contrast to what old GM and new GM were arguing, which was effectively that um, when you have this, this sale order, if you don't enforce it, you're basically rewriting the sale order. And their response was, we're not rewriting the sale order. The sale order is what it is. It just doesn't apply to us. Um, it, it's fairly um, drastic remedy. It's a fairly strong position, uh, but it's one that they chose to take. And I, and I think reading through the lines, one might uh, conclude that one of the reasons that no stay of distribution was sought was perhaps a push by uh, these pre-closing accident plaintiffs to pursue remedies against new GM and not sort of water down their arguments by primarily pursuing or pursuing as a secondary course their right to participate in a distribution of uh, stock uh, uh, held by the Guck Trust. Uh, there was also a brief that was filed by um, some non-ignition non switch plaintiffs. Um, I, I would. It's a very interesting read. They talk a lot about the court's jurisdiction. Um, there's some very creative arguments made. Not sure if they will stick, um, but I will let John go on explain what position was taken by by New GM and the other appellants. Thank you, Henry, and very good summary of the appellant positions. With regard to GM and their response, even though GM largely prevailed at the bank's court level, they did cross appeal, and they seek relief on appeal as well. And obviously they seek to defend the, the portions of the order that found in favor of uh, GM. But shortly put, I mean, the, the issues on the cross appeal are, first they assert that there was no admission by them that GM knew of a widespread systematic ignition switch defect. Um, secondly, they, um, they assert that contrary to the bankruptcy court's finding that the plaintiffs were not, quote, known creditors. And thirdly, um, they, they assert that the court should not have allowed uh, that opening and should not have allowed any claims against new GM. So um, first, uh, GM argues that the old GM sale notice procedures satisfied due process. 
and they point out that they provide publication notice to all potential creditors, including the owners of over um, 70 million old GM vehicles. And yeah, they argue that this is widespread, this is known all over in the news, this was not a secret. Um, and it, they said this notice, the publication notice, was the most practical notice that GM, old GM could send under the extraordinary circumstances it faced in 2009 and satisfied the party's due process rights. They point out the cost to send direct mail notice to all old GM vehicle owners, um, not even factoring in the delay that would be caused by that, would have been $43 million. What's interesting to me is they don't uh, point out what the, the cost would have been to provide direct mail notice to the $27 million that had the ignition switch defect. Presumably it would have been uh, somewhere between the uh, $3 million they spent on the actual notice to 4 million people and the $43 million they said it would have cost to provide notice to 70 million people. But it all begs the question of whether due process has a cost, whether the cost of providing notice is a factor in determining the type of process that is due. Um, the, the bankruptcy court held in 2009 that um, old GM need not provide direct mail notice to the 70 million vehicle owners who uh, may have had contingent claims against. Uh, instead, old GM only needed to provide direct mail notice to those entities who claim, whose claims were known to it, which again begs the question of whether these economic loss plaintiff claims were known to it. Um, but regardless of the type of notice, whether it's direct mail versus publication, its court-approved content told creditors what they needed to know about the sale, that the purchase would purchaser would acquire all GM's assets free and clear of whatever claims the appellants had, including all, su all successor liability type claims. So next, um, GM argues that the appellants received the notice that they're required to receive because they were unknown creditors with contingent claims and, and thus not entitled to direct mail notice. So here they take issue with the bankruptcy court's finding that these were known creditors. And I think the reason they do that is that if they are able to um, convince the Second Circuit that these were not known creditors, you don't even get to the prejudice issue. So it, it, it cuts off the argument at the past, so to speak. Um, they point out that the law does not charge a debtor with the knowledge of the existence of a contingent claim absent uh, the claimant's express statement of its intent to lodge a claim against the debtor. Uh, and they point out that they you know, gave, did anyone that actually asserted a claim against them, that put them on notice of, of a claim, a written demand, a lawsuit, all those folks were in the, um, in the bucket of, of uh, 4 million folks that got actual direct mail notice. Um, at the time of the sale hearing, GM argues that almost none of the appellants had submitted any notifications or made any expression of intent to file claims against old GM. Uh, similarly, almost none of them had uh, sued old GM. And that vehicle owners like appellants only have contingent claims against the manufacturer, even if the manufacturer may have some reason to know of a possible defect. If the potential tort claimant has not put the debtor on notice of his claim, he is an unknown creditor, according to GM. Known creditors, on their hand, are those vehicle owners who had put old GM on notice that they would be asserting a claim against it. Um, then they, uh, and GM does you know, make what I think is a technical argument that the only known creditors are those that were reflected in the books and records of old GM. I find that to be uh, disingenuous in this context uh, because if you assume they had, if you assume the management had knowledge of the actual ignition switch defect, um, and if that was sufficient to, 
to, to under the law to require them to provide recall notices, then you know to me you know the fact that wasn't uh, in the books and records that's not a compelling argument. Um, GM also takes issue with the bankruptcy court's factual finding that certain appellants were known creditors and, and, and claim that that finding was clearly erroneous. I think what's important here is um, a lot of people base their opinions on this and what's reported in the media. This actually came before the bankruptcy court upon stipulated findings of fact. In other words, um, the, the parties jointly submitted stipulated findings that formed the basis for the factual record that was made. And you know what the bankruptcy court was called upon to do was to make legal conclusions as to as to those factual stipulations. So what GM does in the appeal brief, and 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 I first looked at it with skepticism, but then when I read it again, you know they they, they may have um, a legitimate argument here. The the court um, basically said that that um, yeah they made a finding. The bankruptcy court made a factual finding based upon the record that. Um, that vehicle owners with emission switch defect were known creditors. And GM says that this, the court based this finding on an alleged ad admission that GM, new GM said it did not make. So the stipulated facts don't provide that old GM admitted they had knowledge of appellant's claims, and instead the stipulated record only admits that some old GM employees were aware of certain unresolved instances where certain vehicles at issues relating to airbag, non-deployment, ignition switches, or stalls. So again, they, they refer to books of records, which which I don't find compelling. But um, basically, what they're saying is, you know, we didn't know that there was a widespread systematic ignition switch defect, and certainly we didn't admit that in the uh, stipulation of facts. And that you know, the, to the extent that the bankruptcy court came to that conclusion, that wasn't in the record before it. So, in, in if they're successful in, in convincing uh, the the Second Circuit of that fact, and the Second Circuit presumably will, re will be reviewing the same uh, record that the Bankruptcy Court had in the stipulated facts, uh, and it, that causes the uh, Second Circuit to conclude that these were not you know, known creditors in, in the parlance of the case law, then that that may end the inquiry there. But um, the um, GM goes on to argue that the alleged insufficiency of publication notice is irrelevant because the appellants didn't suffer any prejudice. And, and here they're backing up the argument that, and supporting the argument that the bankruptcy court, uh, the conclusion the bankruptcy court came to. Um, and um, they point out that under well-settled law, and you know, all seven uh, circuit courts that have addressed the issue, not including the Second Circuit, importantly, a due process claim requires a showing of prejudice in a sale context. And the appellants offer no reason to relieve them of this obligation. Um, the case law the appellants rely upon doesn't apply. It's non-bankruptcy law for the proposition that the failure to receive direct mail notice of the sale is, is a harm in and of itself that deserves, that demands a remedy. In other words, GM is saying you know, there, there are seven circuits that have decided this issue in the context of a sale, and it's well settled under all those circuits that you need to show prejudice in a sale context. And um, the case law cited by the appellants is not in the in the sale context. And you know, it's an important issue because there is no law in the Second Circuit on this. So this this case, you know, the extent to which prejudice is required to, to establish a due process violation, this is going to be uh, new law in the Second Circuit. 
And GM argues that in the context of a Section 363 sale, it's particularly important to require a showing of prejudice before a court can or should set aside bargain for rights to a good faith purchaser and a sale order years after the sale occurred, in this case, uh, over five years after the sale occurred. Uh, appellant's due process argument um, largely ignores the critical difference in, in bankruptcy law between the notice required for a Section 363 sale and the notice required in the claims resolution or the plan and discharge process. The notice required and the consequences for failing to receive perfect notice is different in each of these uh, contexts for, for several reasons. Number one, the scope of the court's inquiry in the Section, 360, Section 363 sale process is more limited. The court is not focused on specific creditor claims or the substantive rights of creditors. The issue is to be resolved in the post-sale claims resolution process. And secondly, because of the differences in focus between the sale process and the claims resolution process, the notice to creditors is different for each. In the sale context, the notice relates primarily to the specifics of the sale. And in the claims resolution process, the notice relates to how when and what to include in a claim filed against the debtor. So the lack of direct mail notice in the context of a sale process has different consequences than in the claims adjudication context. And a lack of direct mail notice results only in the loss of the right to object to the sale itself. Although here, GM points out, others made the same objections as appellants made and the bankruptcy court overruled all of those objections and it doesn't result in the extinguishment of a claim against the debtor. In the sale context, there is a third party involved, the bona fide purchaser for value, that is, in this case, new GM, and any sale notice violation by the seller can't unfairly prejudice the rights of that third party purchaser who paid fair value for the assets sold, including buying, essentially, the liability shield. And I think that that is a you know, critical point in all of this, um, that you know, if the, the harm, the, the wrong that was done was done by old GM and not providing notice to these folks, um, GM is making the argument, well, you know, the punishment that um, would result from that harm would go against the innocent party, which is new GM, and, you know, that, that shouldn't be, um, particularly without a, a showing of prejudice. Um, and that's one of the reasons New GM argues that you know, the prejudice showing is um, so important because you're, you're asking not to go against old GM, you're asking to go against new GM, which is what uh, the appellants really want. Uh, as the bankruptcy court concluded, uh, harm or prejudice is an element of any due process claim. And appellant's suggestion that prejudice is not required would lead to unfair results, and is especially true in the bankruptcy sale context where there are so many parties involved, including other creditors and a good faith purchaser who again paid fair value and who was not involved in the alleged notice infirmity. Um, and the, really to prove prejudice, the, the GM argues that a party must show that its participation could have made a material difference in the outcome of the proceeding. And here, appellants must show the sale would not have occurred or its terms would have been different. And the bankruptcy court determined that it would have reached the same result in 2009 if appellants had added their voices to the chorus of objectors making the very same objections uh, that the bankruptcy court already heard, considered, and overruled. So the, uh, the bankruptcy court knew the consequences of cutting off successor liability at the time that it approved the sale order. The bankruptcy court knew 
that old GM was selling vehicles up through the day of the sale, and it anticipated that design-related issues might emerge over time in some of those vehicles. The appellant's sale objections are the, the same as those litigated in 2009 on behalf of all vehicle owners. Those groups argue that shielding new GM from successful liability claims arising from defects in vehicles manufactured by old GM would violate due process because vehicle owners had not received direct mail notice regarding specific claims relating to their vehicles that were not known to them at the time of the sale hearing. And those objections were all overruled by the bankruptcy court. So um, next argument that new GM asserts is that the, the the bank's court had the authority to remedy the violations of the sale order and acted within its discretion to enforce, to enforce the sale order against the appellants. There's some argument made by the appellants that it was really outside the bankruptcy court's jurisdiction to enforce the injunction containing the sale order against um, you know, parties that had not been parties to the proceeding and, and that were asserting claims against new GM and other courts. And the bankruptcy court said basically no that, um, and, and, and new GM argues that basically no, the bankruptcy court did have a rising in, juristic, a rising in jurisdiction because it had to interpret and enforce its own order, which was the sale order. And you know, really, that you know, if, if the court can't do that, what you're really saying is that the there can't the bankruptcy court doesn't have jurisdiction to approve sales um, free and clear of successor liability claims, and it's established in the Second Circuit that you can do that. So by arguing that the court doesn't have jurisdiction to enjoin actions that are in violation of a free and clear order, then you're saying it's tantamount to saying that the court doesn't have the jurisdiction to issue that order in the first place, and it's pretty clearly established in the Second Circuit that you do have that. The bankruptcy court does have the, the authority to issue that free and clear order. Um, next, GM, argue, GM argues that the bankruptcy court should not have modified the sale order six years after its consummation. And this goes to that the one area where the, the bankruptcy court found that the plaintiffs had established prejudice because they identified one argument that um, they would have made that was not made below, which is that they should be entitled to uh, pursue so-called independent claims against new GM uh, related solely to um, new GM conduct, even though it pertained to old GM vehicles. Um, you know, I'll, I'll just summarize this briefly because you know we're running short on time, but they, they essentially argue that you know under Section 363M, and there's no question that uh, New GM, which was primarily the U.S. government and the Canadian government combined, um, received a good faith finding under Section 363M, and that they were protected by that and by Rule 60B um, from you know a, a modification of the sale order five or six years after the fact to allow these new claims to proceed. Uh, to me, um, to the extent that the the order uh, en encompassed those claims to begin with, I think it was overbroad um, because we're talking about you know, the claims that the bankruptcy court carved out, so to speak, were claims based solely upon new GM conduct that occurred after the sale. So how those would have been enjoined in the first place um, is a real question. And I think it, um, so whether you view it as a matter of um, overbreath in the original order or something that was um, maybe proper in the initial order, but um, something that upon consideration um, by the, the appellant's arguments here below, that was a new issue that had not been raised, and one as to which 
the court found that prejudice existed, um, that to me um, was probably appropriate grounds to, to assert those claims, which in my view probably should not have been within the scope of the injunction in the first place. Um, the, um, and of course, there's a lot of collateral proceedings that, that we'll get to, and there's been a lot of litigation about what is, what falls within that category of so-called new claims and what doesn't. Um, I'll just briefly touch upon the, the Wilmington Trust Company brief because the GM brief doesn't really discuss the, the claims against the Gok Trust and the equitable mootness issue. That's an issue that was addressed by Wilmington Trust. And, and of course, Wilmington Trust uh, argues in uh, support of the bankruptcy court's conclusion that the claims against the Guck Trust um, are equitably moot, and they essentially go through um, the various factors. As Henry pointed out, there are five factors, and there are there are three that the parties really focused on. Um, but the Wilmington Trust really picks up on those and, and says those factors apply and do establish that there is equitable mootness here. Um, First of all, Wilmington Trust says the bankruptcy court can't fashion effective relief for the plaintiffs out of the trust assets uh, because it will be inequitable to do so. Basically, the, um, the bankruptcy court correctly found that it could not fashion any relief for plaintiffs because the assets remaining in the Guck Trust could not be diverted from their contractual purposes for plaintiffs' benefit. The only Guck Trust assets existing both at the time of the opinion and, and now have been reserved to fund disputed and JPM claims, and the Guck Trust anticipated costs and expenses. At this point, 93% of the Guck Trust assets have been distributed. Um, so as the bankruptcy court explained, modification of the plan would be grossly unfair to holders of disputed claims and could not be done without impermissibly uh, revoking the entirety of the plan and confirmation order. The plaintiff's assertions that the unit holders were on notice of the potential for late claims and dilution are unsupported by the documents, which provide that the Guck Trust beneficiaries are limited to holders of allowed or disputed claims as of the effective date, holders of JPM claims, and unit holders that claims filed after the effective date will not be permitted against the Guck Trust consent, um, absent Guck Trust consent or bankruptcy court order and that the plan may not be modified in a manner that is materially adverse to the holders of claims and interest following confirmation. And with regard to that accordion feature that, that Henry discussed, um, the Wilmington Trust says it's far from certain that the plaintiff's claims would result in the approximately $3 billion of allowed claims necessary even to begin triggering the accordion feature. Uh, and additionally, the plaintiff's claims would undoubtedly result in additional expense for the Guck Trust and a significant delay in distribution to unit holders irrespective of whether the accordion feature is triggered. Um, given that the ballpark estimate for the uh, economic loss plaintiff's claims uh, is somewhere in the range of 7 to 10 billion from the estimates I've heard, it would seem to me that the accordion feature would be triggered, but uh, that, that's uh, an issue that's being argued back and forth. Uh, and of course, they, they pick up on some of the lingo from the bankruptcy court order that you know, allowing plaintiffs to recover from the Guck Trust at this point would unravel and, quote, knock the props out of the uh, underlying transactions that form the basis for the plan. Um, and, and, and again, and I think this is probably the most compelling factor, um, the plaintiffs didn't diligently pursue claims against the Guck Trust even after the recall notice was issued in early 2014 and did not seek a stay of distributions from the, the Guck Trust. And that, that's, that's an equitable issue, and that is one of the factors. 
So, um, you know, I also wanted to, to to go into some of the aftermath because even after the, the the bankruptcy court opinion was issued, there was a lot of legal wrangling in the bankruptcy court and other courts about the the testing the scope and boundary of the court's orders. Um, the one of the issues that was uh, debated after the bankruptcy court decision is that whether lawsuits that were barred by the courts, the bankruptcy, bankruptcy court's order, should be dismissed or stayed, and finding no prejudice and observing that there's no clear point, uh, clear uh, case law on point dealing with such a complex uh, situation such as that presented in GM, the bankruptcy court opted to stay the pending lawsuits. And then another issue was whether lawsuits that contained claims based upon allegations involving both old GM and new GM could continue. Um, this is what I would call straddle claims. In other words, um, claims that, uh, complaints that contained allegations that involved um, conduct of, of both old GM and new GM, whether those could proceed, given the bankruptcy court's determination that claims only as against new GM could, could proceed. And basically the court barred the further prosecution of the, the, the straddle claims and reserved jurisdiction to interpret and enforce its own order, including whether deciding whether a particular lawsuit was based in part upon old GM conduct, in which case presumably it would be stayed. Uh, there are new claims being asserted by plaintiffs, however, arguing that new GM had an independent duty to inspect the debtor's books and records and promptly inform plaintiffs of the possibility of ignition switch claims. And you know, this is opened, probably started as a, a narrow uh, opening, uh, which you know, plaintiffs' attorneys have broadened it and, and, and created a, a huge wedge. Um, you know, and, and their trick for them is to fashion complaints that really don't make any allegations whatsoever about old GM conduct and just start from the point of the sale going on and essentially fashioning a claim for relief based upon the knowledge acquired by uh, new GM post-sale and their the significant uh, portion of the management personnel and in-house legal team um, who are alleged to have known of the initial defect came over to new GM and you know, arguably at some point those folks had a, an obligation to uh, advise the public and issue recall notices regarding the defect in the vehicles and they still waited after 2009 sale until 2014, five additional years to, do, to issue that recall. Um, next issue is whether the court's order um, barred efforts by the claimants to withdraw the reference for proceedings involving disputes about whether certain claims violated the guidelines. The court decided that its order should not be interpreted to prohibit efforts to withdraw the reference as the bankruptcy court is a unit of the district court and precluding relief to the district court would be inconsistent with the Supreme Court's decision in wellness. And lastly, and, and most recently, um, the issue has come up as to whether new GM can be liable for punitive damages based upon actions the company took following the 2009 bankruptcy sale. And in November of last year, Judge Gerber held that yes, the plaintiffs would be permitted to present evidence to the jury that new GM learned of the ignition switch defect from old GM employees and essentially covered up that defect in support of a claim for uh, punitive damages. Um, lastly, you know, I think Henry and I just want to summarize, you know, what are the takeaways from this? What are the lessons um, to be learned? And, you know, what should we be looking for in the Second Circuit opinion? Um, I would say the decision is, is difficult to predict because the issues presented are uh, primarily issues of law as to which a de novo standard of review applies. Um, 
whether a showing of prejudice is required to establish a due process violation in the sale context is a critical legal issue, as well as defining the standard of what is a known creditor entitled to actual notice, what that is. Uh, among other things, the, the appellants are asserting that the failure to receive notice and the inability to participate in the process itself is prejudice, what I would call prejudice per se. And if the Second Circuit agrees with the appellants, and I think that would be a, a split from the other circuits, it will increase the risk and consequences flowing from the lack of proper notice. And even if the, if the decision is affirmed on appeal, the GM case does highlight the importance of notice on the ability to enforce sales and the need for purchasers from a bankruptcy court, from a bankruptcy estate to, to carefully scrutinize the process to ensure the best possible service. As such purchasers could have adverse consequences from the seller's uh, notice deficiencies. In other words, it, it is the debtor's duty to provide notice, but if the debtor doesn't do so properly and correctly, the consequences of that could fall upon the purchaser. It's really the, the purchaser's risk. And in the GM case, there were 850 objections that were filed to the sale, but most run-of-the-mill cases are not going to have that uh, so-called safety net. Um, as the, and as the one argument that the class plaintiffs identified that other objecting parties did not make that claims against new GM based solely upon GM, new GM conduct post-closing should not be barred, Judge Gerber found that prejudice existed and such claims were allowed to proceed against uh, new GM. So, um, Henry, I know you have some uh, final observations as well. Yeah, I'll try to make it quick. I mean, just in terms of headlines of things to take from, from this case, really the whole proceeding, and one is, is you know, we've alluded to repeatedly, you know, notice matters. Focus on the details. And um, I think it's very easy if you have a, a, purchase, a buyer client, you know, to think that, gee, it's important the debtor take care of these things. The bottom line is when, when you're talking about notice and you're trying to take assets free and clear, notice uh, is really your problem. Um, you need to, if you're buyer's counsel, you need to treat the notice issues as if you were debtor's counsel. In fact, even more uh, more urgently than you would if you were debtor's counsel. That's your shield. You need to make sure notice is proper. Second is, and I think you talked about this too, John, um, the GM case is really unique. This idea of prejudice, while other parties made arguments, I mean, most cases aren't going to have 850 objections to a sale motion. A lot of cases there are a handful. In some cases there are none. So this idea that um, if you're a buyer, you'll be protected because somehow other people will make the objections and they'll be overruled. In most cases, you know, if, if you're not providing notice, parties who had an argument, um, if the argument's not presented by another party, even if, even if they, there is this notion of, of showing actual prejudice, you know, don't count on other people to make these arguments. Um, you need to get notice out, and if you don't provide it, there's a decent chance that somebody didn't get notice and will either not be barred at all or will make an interesting argument. The court says, you know something, if you'd made that argument here, um, it would have been uh, a sustained. And so don't, don't assume that someone else is going to be protecting, uh, other objectors are going to be protecting you as a buyer from consequences of parties who aren't noticed. Um, another thing is this concept of in personam liability and the Grumman case. I mean, there's a lot of unsettled case law about what, what type of successor liability can attach um, when assets are sold. Even courts within the same district often seem to issue opinions that arguably are contradictory. Second is you, you need to really, if you're a plaintiff and you've been harmed, 
act promptly, get a stay. If you know there's going to be a distribution, act immediately. Raise your hand, get papers on file, don't sit back. If you sit back, as this case shows, there was one distribution, 2% of the estate. That may bar all of the plaintiff's rights to receive a distribution to any portion of the trust. Don't assume that you can wait back and maybe just assume you'll be slightly prejudiced. If you wait at all, you may be barred from asserting any further rights against the estate. Um, there's also a lingering question of when it's necessary to provide actual notice and constructive notice. Here's my view of it. If, if a party is a potentially known creditor, if you have some reason to believe that that party might be asserting a claim in the future, whether it's shown no, any inclination at all, get notice to them, put them in, find the address, give them notice, and then that way later on, you know, you can be assured that your proof of claim bar date will be, will be valid. And again, this is an issue for buyers. You're taking assets. Make sure anybody who's in the periphery who might be a claimant in the future uh, is provided with notice. Um, the, the, the other other two issues are um, prejudice. What's prejudice? I think this, this decision leaves it open. Um, uh, what's necessary to find prejudice? And one of, one of the arguments, if you take a 30,000-foot view of this case, and you think about this idea that there was no prejudice shown, um, wow, that's sort of a troubling uh, concept, this idea that, well, other parties made your argument, so there's really not prejudice. And I think what you see the plaintiffs trying to articulate is, well, what are you talking about there was no prejudice? There were all these, there were all these defects. The defects harmed us. We're not able to assert claims against the trust. We're not able to assert claims against the buyer. How could there possibly be more prejudice? And there's something to that. I think they're having a, a difficult time articulating exactly how that works, at least as to the first aspect, the sale notice as opposed to the proof of claim notice. But there's something to that. Um, and then the other issue is, well, if there's a due process violation, it's really hard to know what type of remedy is appropriate. What, what has always personally troubled me is this notion that, well, you know, we can't afford parties a complete remedy, so let's not uh, try to um, unscramble the egg and just leave things as they are. Troubling because even if you couldn't afford creditors, these plaintiffs, a complete remedy, it was pretty clear you could have afforded them a partial remedy. And so, you know, there's always a question about what happens. And then they could make the argument, yes, you can give me a partial remedy, but you know something, a partial remedy is not enough. I should be, therefore be able to go after the, the purchaser of these assets. Uh, these things are going to be sorted out by the Second Circuit, but my sense is we're going to be hearing about this for years to come, bankruptcy court decisions and appellate court decisions, because these are some of the most thorny and difficult issues that you see in a bankruptcy case. And with that, um, thank everybody for listening in. We've had a great time uh, telling you what's going on, and we're eager to do so again once the Second Circuit comes down with its decision. Yeah, at this point, we'd, we'd also open up the, the, the floor, too. If you have any questions, uh, you can press star six, um, and, and we'd be happy to, to answer them to the best that we can. No questions. We, you guys we must have answered all the questions. Present everything clearly and, and no questions. Okay, thanks everybody for, for attending. Um, we appreciate it. And uh, these are, as Henry pointed out, certainly interesting issues to watch. And uh, we'll be very curious to see what the Second Circuit does with all this. 
on this de novo review, and I, I anticipate that we'll be reporting on that after the Second Circuit decision is, is issued. Well done. Thank you, guys. We really appreciate it. Thank right. you. Thank you, Peter. Thank you.